Okay, we are in Hebrews chapter 1. We spent the entire last session, which is, which is up on the website, so if you need that, but the entire last session giving the background of Hebrews. And so it's important to understand the background of Hebrews. What had happened in Matthew chapter 12 was the unpardonable sin was proclaimed upon the city of Jerusalem. And that was, that was because that they had said that Jesus had a demon, denied his messiahship on the grounds of, his demon, uh, of his, their claim of his demon possession, and they rejected him and the unpardonable sin came in Matthew chapter 12. Prior to Matthew chapter 12, he healed the masses, regardless of faith. I mean, he would just heal them. One guy said, I don't even know who it is who healed me. I mean, he just went away. He had no faith, and Jesus just healed him. And you read about that in John chapter 5. But then after Matthew chapter 12, immediately after, Jesus started speaking to them only in parables, and his disciples even say to him, why are you speaking to us all the time now in parables? I mean, there was this amazing shift that occurred. And he said, it's because for you to understand and not for them any longer. And so then in, 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 uh, in Acts chapter 2, verse 40, it talks about how, how when, when Peter was preaching, he says to them out of the NIV version, Acts chapter 2, verse 40, with many other words he warned them, and he pleaded with them, save yourselves from the corruption, from this corrupt generation. Save yourselves from this corrupt generation. Well, how can an individual save themselves? What he was speaking about is in baptism... And then, he's, he, and then he encouraged them to be baptized. In baptism, it would set them apart from that generation. They would no longer be part of that Jewish generation in the sense of the temple worship and being under that Jewish generation in that sense. And that would save them physically. And so the, the, the theme within Hebrews is that not that a person can lose their salvation, but a person can lose their very life. Because remember what these these. Jewish believers around the city of Jerusalem were thinking of because the persecution was starting in about 66 AD is that they thought about going back into Judaism so that they could relieve themselves of this persecution and thinking that they could then come back into Christ after the persecution subsides. And the writer says, no, that is not one of the options for you because you are going to lose your life you're going to lose your life in that 70 A.D. destruction that is coming. Though he doesn't name the year, he says the destruction is coming. We know that these Hebrew believers were not the, Hebrews, the Jews living in Jerusalem, but those living outside, because he says in Hebrews chapter 12, verse 4, you have not yet resisted to the point of shedding blood against your sin. So in other words, there was persecution, but not yet martyrdom. And by this time already, the Apostle James, James the brother of the Lord, and, the, and Stephen the deacon Stephen, had all been martyred in Jerusalem. So we know he's not speaking to the Jews within Jerusalem, but he's speaking to those outside Jerusalem. He, often spe he also speaks of the, the Jews here in this book, the Hebrews here in this book. He is speaking to them. They live outside Jerusalem. He's, he, he refers to them as being generous. And we know that the, the church in Jerusalem had no means for generosity. They, they, were, they were an impoverished church within Jerusalem, and that happened as a result of Acts, in the book of Acts, when the people started coming, not by the command of the Lord, but it was a social experiment the, the apostles tried, and everybody gave everything and laid it at the apostles' feet. Everybody gave all, and the church became impoverished. 
you, and then the instruction comes in the epistles for rich people. It never says rich people should give all their money. It says they should be generous. You want rich people to remain rich so that they can keep on giving. If you make them broke, that's it. You want them to remain rich, and that's why Paul tells Timothy, instruct those who are wealthy in this world to be generous, to be generous. And so that social experiment impoverished the Jerusalem church, and Paul was taking up offerings from the Gentiles and bringing them into the Jerusalem church. We know that they're second-generation believers. Those in Jerusalem were first-generation believers, meaning that they heard the words of Jesus himself. These are second-generation believers because in Hebrews 2, verse 3 and 4, it says, How will we escape if we would ne- neglect so great a salvation? After it was first spoken through the Lord, it was confirmed to us by those who heard. So in other words, it was confirmed to them by those who heard. Those who were in Jerusalem were not second-generation believers. They were first-generation. Those outside Jerusalem in Judea were second-generation. And it was God testifying with them both by signs and, and wonders and by various miracles and by gifts of the Holy Spirit according to His own will. And so we see that this is now, this book is directed toward those who are around Jerusalem. So now we're going to start reading in, in, uh, in Hebrews chapter 1, now that we have this all of last Bible studies section on, on the introduction and, and where we talked about the theme and the period and all of that I covered. And now let's start reading in Hebrews chapter 1 verse 1. God, after he spoke long ago to the fathers in the prophets in many portions and in many ways in these last days has spoken to us in his son, whom he appointed heir of all things, through whom also he made the world. He is the radiance of his glory and the exact representation of his nature, and he upholds all things by the word of his power. When he had made purification of sins, he sat down at the right hand of the majesty on high, having become as much better than the angels as he has inherited a more excellent name than they. For to which of the angels did he ever say, You are my son, today I have have begotten you. And again, I will be a father to him, and he shall be a son to me. And when he again brings the firstborn into the world, he says, And let all the angels of God worship him. And And of the angels, he said, Who makes his angels winds and his ministers a flame of fire. But of the sun, he says, your throne, O God, is forever and ever. And the righteous scepter, and the righteous scepter is the scepter of his kingdom. And you have loved righteousness and hated lawlessness. Therefore, God, your God has anointed you and with the oil of gladness above your companions. And you, Lord, in the beginning laid the foundation of the earth and the heavens are the works of your hands. They will perish, but you remain, and they will all become old like a garment, and like a mantle you will roll them up. Like a garment they will also be changed, but you are the same, and your eyes will not come to an end, and your years will not come to an end. But to which of the angels has he ever said, sit at my right hand until I make your enemies a footstool for, to your feet? For they, for, for they not are they all not ministers, ministering spirits sent out to render service for the sake of those who will inherit salvation? So what he does is he is comparing Jesus the Messiah to angels. Remember that in the book of, of Hebrews, 
He is not saying, I'm bringing to you the good versus the bad. He's bringing the good because it was given by God, and he is saying there is now something better. I'm bringing to you a better covenant founded upon better promises. The first covenant to the children of Israel was good. It was given by God. But he says, I have something better for you. In this book, he is quoting again and again. If you have one of these Bibles that gives you capital letters, uh, uh, small cap letters for the text where it's taken out of the Old Testament. He's quoting from 2 Samuel chapter 7, Psalm 97, Psalm 194, Psalm 45, Isaiah 61, Isaiah 51, Psalm 110, Psalm 102, and Joshua chapter 10. He quotes from all of those books here in chapter 1. This again tells us that he is speaking to Jewish believers, not to Gentiles, because you use the Word of God, the Old Testament, as being a settling point. The Word has said it. The Old Testament has said it. It is settled for them. That would not have been the case with new Gentiles, with Gentile believers. And so you see him speaking this. But let's break it down verse by verse. It says in verse 1, God, after He had spoken long ago to the fathers in the prophets in many portions and in many ways. So He's saying in the Old Testament, God spoke through many prophets in many portions and in many ways. Sometimes He spoke through, through a donkey. Sometimes He spoke through men. Sometimes He spoke through many, through women. In Obadiah, Obadiah is just one chapter, the entire book. And then you have, you have Isaiah, has 66 chapters. Although, although uh, uh, Jeremiah has less chapters, it's actually a longer book because the chapters are longer. There are more words in Jeremiah than in Isaiah. Sometimes you have long books like that that consume an entire lifetime of, of the prophet, like Jeremiah or like Daniel or like Moses, where you have a large portion of his lifetime, as opposed to, say, Haggai, which is just one month ministry, is what's covered in the entire book of Haggai. So he's saying in many portions and as many ways it was presented, he says, in these last days. So again, he's speaking of a dramatic change that has now taken place. In these last days, he has spoken to us in his son. That word his is not really there. It is placed so that we can understand it. It says, in these last days, the literal is, he has spoken to us in son. In sonness. He has spoken to us in son. In the form of his son, God has spoken to us. That is the way. The speaking comes to us now. He says, Whom He appointed heir of all things, through whom He made the world also. So He establishes that there is a Word of God, that every word in the Bible is true. If you have doubts about the Scriptures, let me dispel your doubts. The Scriptures are real. They are there. They are accurate. It says in the Scriptures, No man can add to this prophecy and no man can take away from it. In 2 Timothy 3.16, it says, all Scripture has been inspired from, by God. That word inspired means God breathed. God spoke that word, and it was profitable for teaching, for reproof, for correction, for training in righteousness. In 2 Peter 1.21, it says, for no prophecy was ever made by an act of human will, but men moved by the Spirit spoke from God. If you don't take the Word of God as being absolutely true, it will be very hard for you to excel in your faith. It will be very hard for you to have a powerful ministry. And I can give you many examples. If you go, for example, to the museum at, at, at uh, Wheaton College and you see the Billy Graham Museum, and I've heard Billy Graham give this in his own testimony, and they have it right there, that he was struggling 
struggling in his ministry, struggling in his preaching, and struggling with his belief that the Word of God was accurate. And then one day, wrestling in prayer, he says, Lord, I'm going to take your Word as true, every word in it as true. And that day, his ministry burst forth. That day. And I have shared this with young men who are full-time ministers. I've shared this with them. And they've gone off to different seminaries and they question this and they question that. And they said, you know, every time I read, I'm just critiquing the Word and doubting this. And I said, you will never, never have power until you take this Word of God as being absolutely true in your life. Every word in this book is true. You think that God cannot take a committee and form His Word and choose the right books, there, were, there was rationale for choosing the canon, for choosing the, the New Testament. There was a rationale behind this for choosing what books were to go into the Scriptures. This, and, and God has done this. God has spoken this. And He has authenticated it. We have these words of Christ that are authenticating the Old Testament again and again. Jesus said... You, you do not believe me in John chapter 5. You do not believe me because you do not believe Moses. If you had believed Moses, you would believe in me because Moses wrote of me, Jesus said in John chapter 5. And I told him this and I said, you need to repent and you need to say, Lord, your word is absolutely true. He texted me the next day. He said, the word of God has come alive to me. It's like when I was a new believer. God is just speaking to me through the Scriptures. And I said, that's what happens when you believe every word in the Word of God. And you will throw, have, have these, these famous professors who are famous for destroying people's Christian lives to try to cast in doubt. Look at those professors' lives. Do you want to be like them? The, and you take this Word of God as being absolutely true. Every word in it is true. It is God-breathed. And then you will have power in your ministry. And then you will have power in your life. And then you will meditate on the Word of God and you will go forth. He says, He's spoken to us in Son. God came in the form of a man. You say, well, how can God be in heaven on earth? Well, because He's God. He can be in more than one place at a time. You know that? That's the whole thing about being God. It is no problem for Him to be in heaven and to be on earth in the form of a man. He came in the person of a man. And it says in these last days that he has, he has spoken to us in His Son, whom He appointed heir of all things, and through whom He made the world. Jesus made the laws of physics. Jesus formed the laws of thermodynamics. Jesus is the one. Jesus is the one behind all of this. It says in, in Colossians 1.16, For by Him all things were created, both in heavens and on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or dominions or rulers or authorities, all things have been, been created through Him and for Him. In Matthew twenty-eight eighteen, it says, Jesus said, came and He spoke to them saying, all authority has been given to me on heaven and on earth. That means everything. That means the universe beyond the universe. Everything has been given to Jesus. He is the embodiment of God. He came down. And now look at what it says. It says that, that uh, um, through whom He made the world, and He is the radiance of His glory and the exact representation of His nature. And He upholds all things by the word of His power. Do you want to know why electrons go around a nucleus and don't just fly away and they just keep circling around and why the planets circle around the sun? Why this happens? Because Jesus does this. He is the one who set all these laws of physics. He is the one who has done this. He is the radiance of His glory. 
meaning that Jesus is the Shekinah glory. Jesus is the radiance of God the Father's glory, the exact representation of His nature. What He has done is God has put before us an image of Himself by coming Himself to earth in the form of a man. He is the exact representation of His nature. In John chapter 14, verse 7 through 9, this is what Jesus says. John chapter 14, verse 7. If you had known Me, you would have known My Father also. From now on, you know Him and have seen Him. Philip said to Him, Lord, show us the Father and it is enough for us. And Jesus said to him, Have I been so long with you, and yet you have not come to know me, Philip? He who has seen me has seen the Father. How can you say, show us the Father? Jesus represented God perfectly here on earth. You want to know what God is like? It is hard because He's in heaven. He's invisible. We're on earth. So what He does is He comes down to earth and He represents the embodiment of God takes the form of a man and comes on earth and lives before us. And he says, this is what God is like. Be like Him. This is what God is like. We could see Him. We could hear Him. We have the record of the things that He said. You say, well, He said many other things that we don't have a record of. That's for sure. But He's given us that which we need. He's given us the record that we need. He has given to us. It says in Colossians Chapter 1, verse 15, He is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn of all creation. Colossians 1, 19, For it was the Father's good pleasure for all the fullness to dwell in Him. Not just a portion of the Father dwelt in Jesus. All the fullness of the Godhead bodily. Everything dwelt in Jesus. Now I want you to think about this. We become like people that we, we image. So, in other words, for those of you, how many of you are a collegiate athlete in here? All right, we have one, just one collegiate athlete in here. How many of you, how many of you were, were, were athletic in high school? Okay, there we go. So, so, you know, you can never get really good in athletics without a good coach. I don't care what your, your, your uh, physical abilities are, without a good coach, you'll never be really good. You have to have good coaching, and all athletes will know this. You have to have good coaching. So, so you've got Jim Bevan as your coach, right? And one day when, when my son was running high school track, I had him go out and, and uh, have a private session with Jim Bevan. And Jim Bevan just said, run around the track. And so he ran around the track, and Jim was just watching and counting and watching and counting. And when, when, when my son Ben came back around, uh, 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 Coach Bevan said to him, okay, so this is what's happening. Your head is bobbing up and down. Your head has to, has to remain level. It shouldn't be bobbing up and down. You're wasting too much energy going up rather than forward. And he says, this is your stride. This is your gait. This is what you have to do. Ben instantly, it instantly corrected, and his times got so much better, just like that, with a professional coach. A friend of mine, his son was, uh, was uh, an expert in archery. I said, he'll never really be competitive without a good coach. He says, he's really good. I said, you put him up against the guys that are going to be trying out for the Olympics, he won't stand. He tried it and he didn't, didn't stand. He got him some professional coaching and instantly those coaches saw what needed to be done, a few little corrections, and he was all better. My son was a kicker in high school. 
and, uh, um, and he was being recruited by colleges, but I used to take him to professional kickers. And, and after he'd finished half a day with a professional kicking coach, I mean, it was just, just like clockwork, just spot on. And as soon as he starts getting bad, he starts missing, I'd bring him back to the coach. They'd see instantly what's happening, and they'd instantly correct him. We need correction. We need to be put on the right path. The same thing happens with good students. If you want to be a good student, hang around good students. Hang around those who work hard. And it will, you will be, be, be encouraged to work harder. You hang around godly people, it will make you godly. I have had the great blessing of being discipled by godly men. Brother Bhakti Singh of India. Brother T.E. Koshi. Dr. Delmar Brosma. Buck Hatch. Those four men disciple me. When I was an undergrad, when I was the age of many of you, I was in a local church and I wanted to get to know the pastor and I became the pastor's best buddy. I was always hanging out with him, but it was, it was, you you know, I had this ulterior motive. I wanted to learn what it was to walk in godliness. And I hung out with him all the time. And I would go with him to Bible studies and see how he would teach Bible studies. And I would, I would watch the way he would do this. How new believers would ask him the silliest of questions, it seemed to me. But how he would gently answer them. And how he dealt with situations that would come at him. Then when I went to graduate school, I became a member of a, a, a church. And, and, and there was a professor at, at the university who was also a pastor of the church. I became like his best buddy. I would pray with him. I'd, we'd get together, we'd pray. We'd go on prayer walks together. And, and i just listen to him and watch the way he operated. I want I to serve the Lord through public speaking. I watch good public speakers. I'll watch Billy Graham, tapes of Billy Graham and, and, uh, 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 on YouTube. I want to watch, how did he speak? What was it about the way he, he encouraged people to come where masses of people would come forward? What was it about Billy Graham? No doubt there was an anointing there, but I wanted to watch those who were good at public speaking. And I wanted to watch good professors that could grab the attention of their students. What was it that they were doing? And those who were not good at it, I would see what not to do. You want to hang out with those that are good at something. And so what Jesus does is He demonstrates to us God. God comes here on earth and demonstrates Himself to us so that we can follow His pattern. Jesus only did what he saw the Father doing. In John chapter 5, verse 17, it says, But he answered them, My Father is working until now, and I myself am working. For this reason, therefore, the Jews were seeking all the more to kill him, for not only was he breaking the Sabbath, but he was also calling God his own Father, making himself equal with God. So for a man to call God his own Father, in our Western mindset, doesn't make him equal with God. In the Eastern mindset, it absolutely made himself equal with God by saying that because they wanted to kill him. That's how clear it was to them because he was making himself equal with God. Verse 19, Therefore Jesus answered and was saying to them, Truly I say to you, the Son can do nothing of himself unless it is something he sees the Father doing. For whatever the Father does, these things The Son also does in like manner. Whatever the Father does, the Son does. Jesus said, I am modeling to you what God the Father does. You want to know what God the Father is like? Read about the life of Jesus Christ. That's what God the Father is like. That's what God the Father is like. Jesus could speak a very strong word and instantly go and love the sinner. Jesus could be a defender of the faith, a defender of the Scriptures. 
and immediately love the individual. This is what He models to us because He says, I only do what the Father does. God has put a picture of Himself right in front of us. We we can't say, well, if I only knew what God was really like. Jesus has demonstrated that. And it's recorded right there. This is what He's really like. In Proverbs 23, 17, it says, Do not let your heart envy sinners. Do not want to be like sinners. Do not wish that you could have what they have. It is destruction. But live in the fear of the Lord always, it says. In 1 Corinthians chapter 11, verse 1, it says, Be imitators of me, that's Paul, just as I also am of Christ. You see what he says? Imitate me as I imitate Christ. If you don't have this picture of Christ in front of you, imitate me. I am imitating Christ, Paul said. This is why I wanted to learn from godly men. You learn from people who are the best in their art, the best in their craft, what you can get hold of. And learn what it is. Learn the image of that. In 1 Corinthians chapter 15, verse 33, it says, Do not be deceived. Bad company corrupts good morals. Do not be deceived. 1 Corinthians 15, 33. Do not be deceived. Bad company corrupts good morals. You hang around, around, you hang around the wrong folks, it will corrupt your good morals. You say, well, I'm just being a good witness to them. Well, you be careful how much you try to be a good witness to them. Make sure that they're not the ones pulling you down. You have to be very careful about that. That you are indeed being a witness to them more than they're being a witness to you because bad company corrupts good morals. In 2 Timothy 3 verse 10, it says, But realize this, that in the last days difficult times will come. For men will be lovers of... uh, Lovers of self, lovers of money, boastful, arrogant, revilers, disobedient to parents, ungrateful, unholy, unloving, irreconcilable, malicious gossips, without self-control, brutal, haters of good, treacherous, reckless, conceited, lovers of pleasure rather than lovers of God, holding to a form of godliness, although they have denied its power. Avoid such men as these, he says. Here's the list. Avoid these people. Avoid them. Because Paul knows that if Timothy hangs out around these sort of people, he's going to become like them. He says, avoid them. And then in verse 10 he says, Now you follow my teaching. Conduct, purpose, faith, patience, love, perseverance, persecutions and suffering. Just as happened to me at Antioch, at Iconium, and at Lystra. What persecutions I endured. And out of them all, the Lord rescued me. Follow my example, Timothy. It says to to Paul, Timothy was his beloved son. Timothy was like his beloved son. This is a father pleading with his son. Don't follow the bad examples. He says these bad examples, they're irreconcilable. That means you are to be reconcilable. Has something happened between you and another person? Let it be reconciled. Don't let something happen in your marriage to cause it to be irreconcilable. People say, well, you know, we... We have irreconcilable differences, therefore we're getting a divorce. Huh? The Bible characterizes that as a group of people that you're not supposed to model. You're not supposed to be irreconcilable. You're supposed to be reconcilable. We model these things because it has been modeled to us in Christ. It has been modeled to us in Paul. Paul says, imitate me as I imitate Christ. We are to follow his teachings. 
It says, older women, in Titus 2, 3 through 5, older women likewise are to be reverent in their behavior, not malicious gossips, nor enslaved to much wine, teaching what is good, so that they may encourage the younger women to love their husbands, to love their children. You want to see what a good wife is like? Look at my wife. I mean, she is amazing. I love my wife. I'll tell you, I had no idea of the qualities that she had when we got married. I... I knew she was a nice girl. She had a good spirit. I didn't know how much she would sacrifice herself for others. I had no idea. She is so giving of herself. You want to see what selfless giving is? Look at my wife. You learn from older examples. This is what we're supposed to do. Jesus loves you. It characterizes him in Hebrews chapter 1 as being this one who controls the universe, the one who, who built everything, who made everything. He is the radiance of God's glory. Everything that has been made has been made by Jesus Christ. Everything. You look out at mountains, Jesus made it. When you get to heaven, you can ask, tell me what it was like when you made that mountain. I mean, he can tell you. Here, here's a picture of what it was like when it was forming out of Wow, that was amazing. Jesus made it all. Jesus did it all. And you know how much God loves you. God loves you so much that He demonstrated anything that has value, if anything has value, it's only because someone is willing to pay a certain amount for it. So when we start a new business, we think up some new technology and a company starts, how much are we going to charge for this? What do we charge? There aren't a whole lot of comparables. You can look at comparables, but what do you charge? This thing that we've come up with is so much better. What do you charge? Well, you don't know. So what you do is you go to one region of the country and you sell it for X dollars. You go to another region of the country, you sell it for 2x, another region at 3x, and you see when people start, stop buying it. You know, at what level do they stop buying? That's the price. You set it at what people value it. That's the price of something. That's how you set the price on things. You do these demographic studies. What God does when He wants to demonstrate His love to us, what's of value to God? Is gold of value to God? God just speaks the word in gold forms. What's of value to God? His son. Himself. His son. And he takes the thing that's of most value to him and he gives it for you. That's his demonstration of how much he loves you. That's how much God loves you. He takes that which is of most value to him, the one who obeyed him fully, the one who modeled him fully, the one who did nothing of himself, but only for the good of the other. That's the one he gave for you. Now, the humbling thing about Christianity is, we look at ourselves and we're like, God, you you paid way too much. Way too much. I'm not worth that. But God took that which is of most value to him and he demonstrated that love to you. This is what he did. And he takes the word of God and he demonstrates. He says, Jesus is everything. He's so much better than the angels. So much better. He speaks about this. You know, we, we read about this in, 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 uh, in verse 8 of Hebrews chapter 1. But of the Son, he says... Of the Son, God the Father says, Thy throne, O God, is forever and ever. And the righteous scepter is the scepter of His kingdom. You have loved righteousness and hated lawlessness. Therefore, God, your God, has anointed you 
with the oil of gladness above your companions. God the Father says of the Son, Thy throne, O God, is forever and ever. This is what we have here. This is the picture of Christ. He is fully God, come to earth, demonstrated that in the form of a man, and then gives Himself for us. If you do not know God, this is the demonstration of His love, that He has given Himself to this degree for you, the thing that was of most value to Him, He gave for you. That is the demonstration of love. And I urge you, this day, don't let this day pass by. You pray with me. Lord, forgive me because I am a sinner and come into my life. And to those of you who are believers that have had doubts about the Word of God, the Word of God is true and every word in it is true. Jesus has modeled to us perfection. You think that God can come to earth and model perfection and die on the cross and not keep His Word pure? That He's at the mercies of men to keep this Word pure? For goodness sake. I mean, Jesus can take the committee and say, this is what's going to happen. And that's exactly what He did. His Word is pure. And that's why it says in the book of Revelation, no man can add to this prophecy and no man can take away from it. God has kept His Word pure. Believe it. This is the Word of God. Believe it and see the power unleashed in your life. Let's pray. Lord, I thank You so much for Your Word, for the power of Your Word, and for Jesus Christ who has demonstrated God to us here on earth, that everything He did was what He has seen God modeled, that there was nothing that He did that He didn't see the Father doing. And Father, I pray that we would imitate Him, His love, His passion, His fire. And we would imitate godly men like Paul and those around us who model this. Father, I pray that You would take these young people and You would cause them to do what is right, to follow the image before them of what You have placed before them in Jesus Christ, to be like Him. And Father, for those here who don't know You, I pray that they would pray this prayer with me this day. Father, forgive me because I am a sinner. Forgive me for my sins. Wash me by the blood of Jesus. Thank you for dying on the cross for me. Thank you for rising from the dead for me. Thank you, Lord. Come into my life and fill my life. Lord, I pray for these young people that they would take hold of your word and believe it. Every word in the Scriptures is true, that they would believe Your Word and take hold of it. For the glory of Jesus and in His name. Amen.